Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to today's Medical Grand Rounds and one of the very special events in our Department of Medicine, which is our annual Lewis B. Matthews Visiting Professorship. And we're delighted to have David Currow here today to give us the talk. Before I get started on that, I wanted to thank the folks who are doing our culinary medicine program. You may have seen these wonderful parfaits out there. We have an educational program that's been going on for, it will go on for this year and beyond, that at every Medical Grand Rounds, we're educating ourselves about healthy food choices and what's in our food and how to help our patients and ourselves do better mindfulness about what we're eating. And so today was a parfait, uh, which was quite delicious and only 170 calories. <laughs> in addition to that, we do a quiz each of these mornings. And uh, we have a question out there that makes us reflect a little bit. And that was today, how many teaspoons of sugar are in 12 ounces of orange juice? And then the bonus question was, how does this compare to the amount of sugar in soda? We had a variety of answers that ranged from one to 10 teaspoons, and we randomly picked from those who got it correct, and it is 10 teaspoons that are in a 12-ounce orange juice. And the one who got it correct today is Megan Gallagher, and Megan, would you come up and get your prize? It's a bottle. It's a bottle of no-calorie Pellegrino sparkling water. Thank you. Well, it is my pleasure to tell you about the Lewis B. Matthews Visiting Professorship, which was established in 1990 as a memorial to Dr. Matthews, who was a skilled and beloved physician here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center for over 30 years, joining our ranks in the mid-1950s. He was a general internist with a special interest in hypertension and vascular disease. He spent the majority of his career here at our clinic, first as a primary care physician, and later as the medical director of the medical center. He was the quintessential generalist physician, deeply respectful and supportive of his patients, and valued highly for his wit and wisdom by his colleagues. As a physician and as a medical center leader, his integrity was beyond reproach as he invested himself in the problems of those for whom he bore responsibility. In his honor, the Matthews Professorship provides support for inviting to our campus a distinguished leader, scholar, and teacher in medicine who embodies the qualities of mind and heart for which Dr. Matthews is remembered. I would like to welcome Dr. Matthews' widow, Dorothy Matthews, and her daughter-in-law, Lisa Matthews, to today's Medicine Grand Rounds. We thank you both for joining us and for your generosity in helping us bring distinguished faculty meet with our residents and to present their scholarly work at our Medical Grand Rounds. Thank you very much. I would now like to introduce the 2014 Lewis B. Matthews Visiting Professor, Dr. David Currow. David is the Chief Cancer Officer of New South Wales and the Chief Executive Officer of the Cancer Institute of New South Wales in Australia. He is a professor in the discipline of palliative medicine and support services at Flinders University in Bedford Park in South Australia. And he's also an honorary professor at both the University of Sydney School of Medicine 
and the University of Technology in Sydney. He was born in Newcastle, Australia, which is a bit north of Sydney, and he went to high school there and then to university there, receiving his Bachelor of Medicine in 1988. He, his later uh, education included getting a Master of Public Health at the University of Sydney, and just this year was awarded a PhD uh, at Flinders University with his thesis being improving quantitative research in hospice and palliative care opportunities to complement randomized controlled trials. He did his internship and residency training in Sydney at the Westmead Hospital, his palliative medicine experience and training, and then as a registrar at St. Vincent's Hospital in Darlinghurst in Sydney. His career has been as a clinician investigator. His research includes clinical trials, population-based planning, and codifying the evidence base underpinning uh, uh, palliative care. The total value of his research grants to date was 73 million in Australian dollars, which is about 65 million in US dollars, although recently would have been more. Uh, <laughs> there's been some change in the currency exchange rates. Um, there are so many things to tell you about David, I'll be brief. And most of them focus on the fact that he is one of the most uh, recognized international researchers in palliative medicine. He's the principal investigator for the Palliative Care Clinical Studies Collaborative, which has randomized more than 1,400 palliative care patients across 12 sites into phase three symptom control studies. He's the co-principal investigator on an anthology of evidence in palliative care. He's a foundation partner in the Australian Palliative Care Outcomes Collaborative, which is a national initiative to systematically improve clinical outcomes in palliative care. Some other areas of his research include a randomized double-blind study to optimize prescribing of morphine for breathlessness. He also partnered with one of our own, Dr. Don Mahler, in our section of pulmonary medicine, along with other clinicians around the world, in a double-blind randomized study to explore the effect of the body's own morphine-like chemicals on exercise-induced breathlessness in people with emphysema. And he's very involved with telehealth in the home, aged and palliative care in South Australia, which, uh, and, and a further one, advanced care planning in the emergency department, identification of barriers, facilitators, and technological solutions. As you can see, his interests in research are many, and he has developed an opportunity to capture the data that comes from our day-to-day -day work with so many of our patients. He's published more than 330 peer-reviewed papers, articles, editorials, and books. He's the senior associate editor of the Journal of Palliative Medicine. He's on the editorial boards of the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. He's had a major impact in the literature that we read about palliative medicine. Just to be brief, I'll move to some of his other interests, which have to do with music. He is a talented musician playing the pipe organ and the spinet, and he's had solo performances at the Sydney Opera House. He composed and performed and produced the soundtrack for a short film uh, in the year 2000. He also likes fast cars. <laughs> David is into car restoration and club motorsports. He restores small cars and he drives them, as he says, very, very fast. <laughs> I need to tell you that because of the nature of his research and the agents and pharmacologic agents that he uses, there is a financial arrangement for research with Maine Pharma and Helsin Pharmaceuticals. 
and finally, i'm very pleased to tell you that david is becoming our newest dartmouth faculty member he will join us in january as the director of palliative medicine and hospice care and he will partner with sharona sacks, the section chief in that division and her extremely talented group of folks who work in palliative medicine here at dartmouth. we welcome you, david to the dartmouth community. please welcome Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rothstein, for such a warm welcome today. Today we need to consider what palliative care actually has to offer uh, beyond simply uh, the good sense that it makes. And although we're going to be talking about uh, large numbers of people today, I really do want to focus on the fact that we're talking about individuals. Individuals at the end of life who have hopes and aspirations for the time that they have. And so the challenge for us, for you and I on a day-to-day -day basis, is the art of the possible. In the time that you have, what is important to you? And if we can answer that question, uh, then we have come a long way to uh, honoring the vision that, uh, that Dr. Matthews had. Uh, and I understand that uh, in reflecting on the new campus here, uh, he reflected on the important role of teaching students and included in that uh, the reflection on the fact that uh, as part of our work as clinicians, nurses, doctors, allied health practitioners, uh, we have to be there for people who are dying. We have to ensure that we don't abandon those people and that we provide them with the very best care underpinned by the very best evidence that we can in order to inform that care. As Dr. Rothstein said, I have uh, some relevant disclosures to make, uh, none of which relate to today's uh, conversation. So let's reflect for a few moments on death and dying. Uh, not a topic for most Friday mornings, but a topic for this Friday morning. And I don't think it's any mistake that uh, uh, the very first uh, Lewis B. Matthews uh, uh, visiting professor was Balfour Mount. Uh, arguably the, uh, the person who did the most to integrate palliative care into the acute hospital system of North America, uh, still alive and still contributing greatly in, uh, in Canada. So of all the world's wonders, which is the most wonderful? That no man, though he sees others dying all around him, believes that he himself will die. <laughs> now, we often say in clinical practice that denial, we, we use the word denial as though it's a bad thing. And yet you and I live with denial incredibly well. We wake up every Monday morning and we convince ourselves that we're going to finish that day, that week, that month, that year in the same health uh, in which we are. And one Monday morning, that's not going to be the case. <clears throat> So denial actually has an incredibly important role in, uh, in ensuring that we function. The next thing on which to reflect is that there's a fundamental perversity for our entire discussion today, and that is as, as clinical medicine continues to progress, more and more of us are going to have warning of our death. What does that mean? Well, we've got an increasing intergenerational age, we're having uh, children later, we've got increasing life expectancy, and we've got smaller families. 
I look after people who are going to their first funeral in their fifth or sixth decade of someone they actually love. Their grandparents died when they were very young. Their parents are alive and well. Their siblings are alive and well. Their children are alive and well. And suddenly their spouse dies. And they are literally going to a funeral for the first time for someone who is actually near and dear to them. Our exposure to death has changed dramatically in the last half century. And when we think about that over the last century, what do we have? A massive shift in what causes death. I come from Australia. Our nearest neighbour is Papua New Guinea. New Guinea has a maternal and infant mortality rate of 130 per, per thousand live births. Still one of the worst in the world. You and I live in communities where if that figure is uh, in, uh, in the low single digits, we're incredibly worried. But if we look back uh, a very short period of time, uh, that was a major cause of death and disability, as was sepsis. Uh, when we think that uh, penicillin was still uh, uh, really in very short supply until after the Second World War, uh, we realised that uh, the choices that were available to us were incredibly limited uh, until uh, just a few years ago. By contrast, in the year 2000, we die of chronic, complex, progressive, degenerative diseases uh, for the large part because we have become so good at managing uh, those three factors that uh, caused our deaths 100 years ago. And so how do we view death and dying? If you're attending the first funeral of someone you love in your fifth or sixth decade, how do you actually relate to dying? I'd like to suggest that television is a really important part of that, and uh, again, there are some perversities, as you will see. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, um, there are some funded studies that really uh, um, do, uh, do justice to funding, don't they? <laughs> you get a New England Journal article out of getting your research assistants to watch Chicago Hope, BR, and Rescue 9-11 for an entire season. And what do you find? 60 occasions of cardiopulmonary resuscitation with 90, uh, in, in the 97 episodes of, uh, of television which were watched, compared to only 37 deaths. That in itself is pretty astounding. But 75% of all of those people survived their cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 67% survived to leave hospital. Anyone work in a hospital with those sort of numbers? <laughs> Uh, I haven't come across one, but uh, if there is one, I know that that's where I want to be treated. <laughs> the challenge is, if that's how we view death and dying, if that's how the community view death and dying, how are we going to broker a conversation that actually helps us understand how to take forward care for the dying? Because unlike Chicago, Hope, ER, and Rescue 9-11, death is not an optional extra. It's an expected outcome, and for most of us, it will, in fact, be with warning of our death. And so with that, how do we prepare a health system that really in the last century has gone from being entirely palliative to the, the hopes of the 60s and 50s and 60s where we thought we could deal with everything 
to the reality of chronic complex disease. Um, Joanne Lind, who worked for the RAND Corporation, uh, does a wonderful thing and asks her audiences, so who here wants to die of uh, ischemic heart disease? Not seeing any hands. Renal failure? <laughs> cancer? Okay, I've got one taker for cancer. <laughs> Chocolate frog to the woman in the fourth row. <laughs> the rest of you are sitting on your hands, which means that really the choice that you are making is that you want to die of dementia. Uh, <laughs> with chronic progressive disease because you've got to die of something. Let me break it to you gently. And so as a community, we have the challenge of how we face uh, death and dying in that setting. And so we've got people with chronic complex conditions making that transition and a really important transition to chronic progressive disease to finally the process of actively dying. And if you're only awake for 30 seconds this morning, this is it. At a health systems level, what we do really poorly at the moment is recognize the transition from chronic complex to chronic progressive. Because that's the intervention point. That's where we can start to make some of the biggest differences to patient outcomes, which wonderfully will also be reflected in health service outcomes. And talking about death and dying is not necessarily about taking away hope. In fact, most of the time it's not. Most of the time as progressive disease progresses, people welcome the opportunity to have that conversation. And so it's not generating despair. Often it's actually about en enabling a person, giving them permission to have a conversation in otherwise difficult circumstances. So in the next little while, I'd like to look at just three things. What do patients themselves want as they face the end of life? Can we make improvements in health outcomes through good palliative care? And what about the long-term health and well-being of caregivers? Now, this morning, I'm not going to make a distinction between hospice and palliative care. Uh, that's another conversation. Let's take it as a continuum of care for people with life-limiting illnesses. So what do patients want as they face a life-limiting illness? After all, they should be the arbiter of the sort of care that we want to provide, the sort of care that we can take forward for them. And yet most of our health systems are geared with the concept that death is a failure, or indeed that death, worse still, is an adverse outcome. In all honesty, how many deaths do we see that are adverse outcomes as opposed to an expected death? A death that where you and I were not going to change the course of that illness at that time in that person's <coughs> life. That is an expected death. Our whole system is geared to the first, and yet 99.9% .9 of deaths, I would suggest, actually belong in the second. So we've got some dissonance there which we need to resolve at some stage if we're going to take forward care in this setting. Now, you and I can go into Main Street, Hanover, and ask people what they would want at the end of life. And we'd probably get all sorts of uh, wonderful and at times fanciful answers. What happens when we actually ask people themselves who are facing the end of life? I think we get some, some answers that really do tell us a great deal. What would you change 
if you weren't going to see uh, the holiday season out? Who'd come to work tomorrow? Yeah, a few hands. In fact, the people with their hands up are probably the most honest people in the room, with all due respect. So much of who we are and what we do relates to uh, our work. And in fact, the majority of people that I see in this setting continue to work as long as they possibly can. And it's not for financial reasons. It's not for financial reasons. When I ask third-year medical students what they do in this circumstance, um, universally, almost, they say they won't come to university the next day. That's understandable. And they all say, one, one person every year says they'd go skydiving. Now, frankly, why wait until you get the news that your life is limited? Unless, unless it's the fact that skydiving is the closest you can get to a near-death experience and survive. What if you only had months to live? What would you change? Who of us would not have a phone call or two to make to put uh, a relationship right? Who of us wouldn't have uh, the desire to spend more time with our families? I ask people often, what's important in the time you have left? I get some really unusual answers. The person who said, I want to put in my tax return for the last four years really blew me away. <laughs> it's very hard to keep a straight face under those circumstances. But he was really genuine about that. He said, the, the one thing that will mean that I can die in peace is that I do not want to leave my family the headaches of my complex financial situation. He was really genuine about that. And so think this morning, if time is limited, what would you change? Let's, with that, go to the answers that people themselves give. There are a couple of papers. They're seminal papers that uh, uh, still have enormous re relevance today. Firstly, some uh, in-depth interviews with uh, a large number of people with uh, end-stage renal failure, aged care, um, or, in fact, AIDS. And five domains were highlighted uh, in those studies. Pain and symptom control tops the list every time, but it's not an end in itself. Pain and symptom control is there to ensure that people can do the other things that are important to them at the end of life. And people here focus uh, strongly on that, uh, as we do right around the world, uh, but it is only a gateway to allow people to do the other things. How many decisions are made because of the fear of being a burden? Not being a burden, but the fear of being a burden. And as we think about the services that we need to create, the systems that we need to put in place, ensuring that people don't feel that they're a burden is a really key factor. The following year, uh, Karen Steinhauser and her group from Duke uh, in North Carolina published uh, a study that was a national cross-sectional survey. Veterans Affairs uh, uh, people, and uh, I'm aware of at least one cross-cultural confirmatory study in Hong Kong. She asked four groups of people what, were, what was important at the end of life. She asked people who had been told that their prognosis was now measured in months. Recently bereaved family members who had provided care for someone at the end of life six to 12 months after the death of that person. The doctors who were caring for them and then the nurses and allied health practitioners. 
there were some key domains. Again, pain and symptom control was at the top of the list. The fear of pain, the fear of breathlessness, the fear of acute confusion are very real. Preparation for death, what do we mean by that? There are so many legacy issues that need to be considered. People want to ensure that they have uh, the opportunity uh, to, uh, uh, to say goodbye, which also keys into a sense of, a, a sense of completion. The next two, I think, are incredibly challenging for all of us. People felt the need to tell the researchers that they wanted to be involved in decision-making preferences. That suggests to me that people were not being involved in decision-making preferences. And they wanted to be treated as a whole person. Again, suggesting as, as people come in contact with health uh, systems that they do not feel that they are being treated as a whole person. But there are always uh, the twists in the tale. And the things that were important to patients that were not reflected uh, significantly by the other three groups are on this list. Again, not being a burden is there. I like the one at the top, and I graded out, which I shouldn't have done, maintaining a sense of humour. How many patients, with the knowledge that their life expectancy was now in weeks to months, thought that maintaining a sense of humour was either important or very important? Someone want to start the bidding for me? <laughs> Percentage? 75. 75. I have 75 against the gentleman in the fourth row. <laughs> Any advance on that? We're going up or down, ladies and gentlemen? 95. 90. 95. Yep. 93%. How many doctors thought it was important that patients maintain a sense of humor? Oh, come now. That's a little tough. I have 10 from down here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Just over 50%. How many nurses? Just over 60%. Let's not, uh, let's not get carried away here. <laughs> Who of us, after a really tough week, haven't gone home to enjoy an episode of Big Bang Theory on Friday night? <laughs> Why do we suddenly think we should lose that because we have a life-limiting illness? It's a coping mechanism we use through life. And let's face it, when you're facing death, you want to draw on every coping mechanism that you possibly can. How do you and I tap into that respectfully and effectively as one of our therapeutic tools? Being mentally alert was incredibly important. And look at the caveat that's there. At the cost of other symptom control, potentially. That's a real challenge to lots of services around the world where rates of sedation, uh, particularly at the end of life, are incredibly high. We have a real challenge in ensuring that this is genuinely patient-centered care. And if we're going to do that, we have to listen carefully to what patients who are facing a life-limiting illness actually want to tell us. One of my doctoral students uh, characterized it this way, the ability to carry out one's personal and financial affairs as one would want. That really is the goal of care that we have. Or to think of it uh, in another way, irrespective of the underlying life-limiting illness, the needs of people at the end of life are incredibly similar. 
that there is a final common pathway for most people, both physiologically as well as emotionally. And we have an opportunity, you and I, on a day-to-day -day basis to actually identify people who have shifted from chronic complex disease to chronic progressive disease and indeed to those who are actively dying and look at how we support those people. Look at how we ensure uh, that we are providing the very best care in that setting. So the aim of good end-of-life care, I'd submit, is about optimizing function and comfort in each of these domains. Not just physical comfort, but physical, comfort, uh, physical uh, function. People want to remain as independent for as long as possible. And that means that we need to actively involve physical therapists and occupational therapists in ensuring that people can indeed stay as independent as possible for as long as possible, emotionally, existentially, socially, sexually, and financially. Are you able to do the things that are important to you in the time that you have left? And you'd like to think that we do that well. This was a study published back in 2006 which compared the interactions that you and I have on a day-to-day -day basis with patients just by asking essentially open-ended questions with systematically evaluating those patients uh, with uh, uh, tools that help to measure what's going on. Firstly, there's a massive difference here. A tenfold difference in what we see between patients volunteering information to open-ended questions and a systematic inquiry as to what's going on. Now, you and I probably would then say, well, the things that are in the, uh, the additional nine can't be all that important. Not according to patients. That uh, in the ones that uh, are there in volunteered, um, they were moderate to severe with a lot of distress. But even the rates where you systematically inquired as to what was happening <laughs> had incredibly high rates of uh, severity and distress to patients. We looked at uh, a national survey where we asked services to, to uh, hand out questionnaires to 50 consecutive uh, patients per service per year over a three-year period. And what we saw was that uh, in uh, a palliative outcome scale uh, derived from the work of uh, Irene Higginson, 83% of people had pain still. 25% of respondents had overwhelming pain. These are people being seen by our services. These are people who have already identified that they have a life-limiting illness. Why the discrepancy between what we think we see and what patients actually report? I'd like to suggest that patients often give up telling us after a while. But by about the fifth consult, when we've promised that we're going to get their pain under control, they simply shrug their shoulders and say, it's okay. And uh, for other symptoms, 17% had severe or overwhelming symptoms. <coughs> Even within a health system that recognizes that this person is palliative, we still have a long way to go. In work from Canada, more than half of the patients reported pain or shortness of breath, about half of whom reported moderate to severe scores. These are people being seen systematically across Ontario 
and yet look at the symptom burden that they're reporting. And yet pain and symptom control is first rated by patients as the most important thing in providing good end-of-life care. And we've got the challenge of a whole lot of topics that uh, people are not going to, uh, to volunteer, and yet they expect you and me as their clinicians to compassionately and confidently broach these topics. No great surprises on the list, a list that was first really put together by Peter Maguire at the Christie in the early 1980s as he tried to look at communication skills, not only for students, but for established practitioners. Sexuality and intimacy is right at the top of that list. I did a home visit. It's 15 years ago, but I still remember it uh, vividly. Beautiful home nestled in the mountains west of Sydney. A brand new house, a mother of two, uh, daughters were nine and seven, husband was working from home, uh, an absolutely idyllic, uh, just completed uh, place. It was their dream home. And here was uh, this woman at 43 dying. There was something strange about the consult. It just didn't feel right. We were in the family room at the back of the house look, looking over the pool and the beautifully manicured uh, gardens. And it took me about 25 minutes in that consultation and I suddenly realised this woman hadn't left the family room for the last nine days. There was a small ensuite uh, off the family room that just had uh, a toilet and hand basin, no mirror. And she hadn't gone to bed, she hadn't gone to a bathroom. She hadn't left the family room. Why not? She was less than half her normal weight. She didn't recognize herself in the mirror. She hated her body. If she went to bed, her husband simply wanted to hold her, and that reminded her of how much her body had changed. If she showered or bathed, she was going to, to soap herself, she was going to dry herself, she was going to see herself in a mirror. And for nine days, she hadn't left the one safe place in the house where none of those things were going to be drawn to her attention. We're dealing with people whose lives have changed irrevocably, whose body image, sense of self, whose very basis for intimacy will have changed in a way that they know they will never recover. How do you and I at least give people permission to talk about such drastic changes as we interact with them? A sense of self is often changed in ways that you and I can only begin to imagine. Finances, no one wants to talk about. Relationships, fears. You and I have to create an environment where there is at least permission for people to take on those issues. And then finally, the existential issues. The questions that you and I often spend much of our life uh, very actively avoiding. Why am I here? What does it all mean? We each need to have done some work on that, not to give anyone else the answer, but to just realise how hard it is to address some of those issues. And so when someone says to me, I do my own palliative care, I say, great. Every practitioner should be able to take a palliative approach that is to provide uh, good care for people at the end of life. But there is, time, uh, there is a time to, to call in some other help and assistance. 
And that's often just with a new set of eyes. In fact, the longer the relationship between clinician and patient, the more important it's going to be to have someone else come in and ask those innocent questions, which in the first consultation you can ask with absolute safety. Incredibly detailed and often intimate questions uh, that you can ask early on uh, because of the nature of, uh, of a first consultation. So having set that as the scene, that's what the patients have told us they need at the end of life. How do we translate that into a health system that uh, actually delivers better outcomes? I'd like to suggest that uh, uh, we need to think about it this way. I don't know about you, but I, um, I occasionally get uh, an anonymous phone call which says, David, we have to have coffee. Um, when I get one of those phone calls, I usually listen. I just started in a new job, and I got one of those phone calls. David, we have to have coffee. So I turn up, and it's an ex-very senior bureaucrat from our Federal Department of Health. And he decides to tell me a few home truths. He starts with, uh, do you know what the problem with palliative care is? I always like starting coffee with that, <laughs> that question. It makes you feel good, doesn't it? I said, no, I don't know what the problem with palliative care is, but I have no doubt I'm going to find out fairly quickly. <laughs> he said, we fund it as a social good. We fund it to ensure that as a community we feel we're doing something for people who are dying. It needs to be funded, however, David, he said, as something that delivers improved health outcomes across the community, and that will fundamentally change the way we deliver care. He's right. He's taken on a senior policy role at a national uh, think tank for health, and uh, he's continued to drive that view very strongly. So let's look at patient outcomes and health service outcomes of what can actually be achieved. And, uh, you know, tighten your, your seatbelts, we'll... Uh, We'll just go through these relatively quickly. We'll start close to home. This is an important study done here in uh, northern New Hampshire. A randomized controlled trial to explore the impact of models of care. And the ENABLE project really was a nursing-led intervention on quality of life, symptom intensity, mood, and resource use in patients with advanced cancer. So 322 people uh, randomized here in uh, New Hampshire and, uh, and Lower Vermont. <clears throat> Educate, nurture, advise before life ends. They do get a prize for the best acronym. <laughs> what did it show? Firstly, this is the first randomized trial of health service provision in palliative care that actually showed a change in quality of life. 2009. We've said for 30 years it changes quality of life. This is the first time we've actually demonstrated it. Now, quality of life is a complex thing, and we can have that discussion over a glass of red any time, but I'd like to suggest it's like a cork in water. You pull a cork underwater, and you let go, and it comes back to the same level. Quality of life is really difficult to measure, because for most of us, no matter what life throws at us, we will eventually return to some sort of norm uh, that is actually very close to the norm that we've carried throughout life. So to show a difference here is truly astounding. And that was uh, seen in quality of life, uh, but not in symptom intensity, um, in uh, the uh, uh, intervention 
um, except um, for those people who, uh, um, where we compare uh, before and after in that, uh, in that space. We then come to the Tamil study, which was a seminal study that looked at early referral to palliative care uh, versus standard care for people with non-small cell lung cancer at uh, Massachusetts General. People were randomly assigned to, to this, and uh, the assessment was at baseline and at 12 weeks, using a number of validated scales. Importantly, better quality of life uh, in those who were referred to, to palliative care, fewer depressive symptoms, less aggressive end-of-life care, and then the clincher. Median survival was greater in those who were referred for early palliative care, and they had had less intensive therapy at the end of life. Now, every commentary I saw on this suggested that the starting point was that the people in palliative care had additional survival. I'd suggest this morning that it's exactly the opposite, that the natural history was the palliative care arm, and that there were people with, with more intensive therapy at the end of life whose life was actually being shortened. And so the reference point here becomes really important. And everyone dismissed this and said it wasn't a primary outcome, therefore we shouldn't pay attention to it. I don't know about you, but we've funded medications on much less survival than, uh, than the three months outlined here, with much less toxicity. And so uh, as we think about that, we really do need to reframe the potential outcomes for palliative care in this setting. Again, across the Canadian border, um, uh, a study that uh, really reproduces the Tamil study, again, in people with, uh, with non-small cell lung cancer um, and uh, a, a number of other cancers this time, and uh, expanding the Tamil work across uh, a, a range of, uh, of issues. Again, we look at quality of life, symptom severity, and satisfaction with care. So what do we see uh, in terms of uh, quality of life, uh, borderline uh, uh, benefit, in terms of symptom control? Again, no real change, but in terms of family support, uh, a really big change. Uh, across the, uh, the, the system. More recently, in fact, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, Irene Higginson's group from King's College London published uh, a study which, uh, again, moves outside cancer to, to people with refractory breathlessness who were randomized to a breathlessness intervention study. And that was really a, a single point of, uh, of reference for patients and their families, integrating palliative care, respiratory medicine, physical therapy and occupational therapy. They were stratified by four groups of randomization, cancer, non-cancer, breathlessness, severity, presence of an informal caregiver and ethnicity. And the primary outcome measure was at six weeks. So 105 consenting patients, and they looked at mastery and breathlessness um, from the support service group um, and uh, saw a significant difference. But again, we see a survival benefit for those who are offered the breathlessness intervention service, which was essentially a palliative care program for people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, and interstitial lung disease. The differences were not seen with cancer, uh, but were seen with both emphysema uh, and interstitial lung disease. 
They're patient-based outcomes. What about health service outcomes? Uh, Amy Abernathy and I, uh, for our sins, did a, a large randomized control trial uh, at a, a district level um, some decade ago. We looked at uh, a number of factors, but importantly brought together the patient, their caregiver, their family physician, and a member of the palliative care team in a case conference. What did we show in that randomized trial? We showed that case conferencing reduced hospitalizations by 26%. A single family meeting of half an hour to three quarters of an hour reduced hospitalizations by 26%. That's a great outcome if you don't want to spend time in hospital. It's a great outcome for hospitals too. When we look at uh, other work, uh, Lorna Rosenwax and her team looked at uh, emergency department and hospital use in the last year of life from a linked data set uh, across uh, Western Australia. Again, uh, the last 365 days of life. Firstly, 4% of uh, people who died spent no time in hospital in the last year of life. What if you and I could double that number to just 8%? What impact would that have at a health service level of freeing up the ED, of freeing up acute beds when people don't want to be in hospital in the first place? And look at the other figure. 4% were seen in the emergency department on the last day of life. Now, I like emergency departments. I've spent a lot of time there. But I can promise you I don't want to spend my last day on this earth in an emergency department. Not if I can help it. And uh, if we look uh, at uh, a similar study again in Western Australia, uh, this was the last 90 days of life for people who had early versus late access to palliative care. Not randomised, but whole of population. And uh, look at this. If you had early access to palliative care, the chances of presenting to the emergency department in the last 30 day, 90 days of life was only 31% versus 52% of those who had early access, who did not have early access, sorry. And more recently, again, an almost identical picture uh, as we look at propensity-matched cohorts um, really exploring the use of uh, services at the end of life. Those who had uh, palliative care had a 30-day readmission rate of 9.1% versus 17% for those who didn't. And so we see at a health systems level that those who have earlier access to palliative care are using the health system very differently. And finally, this large study from, uh, from Canada, which was recently published in the British Medical Journal, they looked at 11 palliative care teams. Uh, essentially, the core of this were, were family physicians together with palliative care nurses uh, and uh, specialist palliative care doctors whose job it was to manage symptoms, provide education, coordinate services, and be available without interruption uh, around the clock. What do we see? Those who had palliative care were far less likely to be admitted to hospital, far less likely to use the emergency department, and more likely to die at home. Big impacts across the system for very small investments by comparison to much of what we spend our health dollar on. I don't want to finish without just reflecting on the health of caregivers. It's really easy to romanticize community care. But you and I may have contact for half an hour every few weeks. There's someone out there, chances are, 
who is there day in, day out. Caregiving is a health hazard. We have excess health service utilisation during the role and a really significant hangover effect. That is, that having finished the role, you still have excess mortality over the ensuing two years. That is a huge health price to pay for caregivers. For palliative caregivers, there's often no start date and often an ill-defined end date. In fact, many people who are providing care around the clock don't identify themselves as caregivers in this setting. We also have the, the fact that caregivers have this dual and at times uh, actually contradictory role. They are both care co-workers with us as health professionals as well as themselves being care recipients. And that's a difficult line for both sides of the, uh, the desk to actually uh, deal with. And again, 7 to 9% of people have no identified caregiver, and that rate is going to go up dramatically in our communities. The number of people who will live alone in our communities is projected to skyrocket over the next 30 years. How big an issue is this across our community? These are from community-based data, not just relying on people who've had access to health services. One in three people had someone close to them die and expected death in the last five years. One in ten people across our community provided care to someone who died and expected death in the last five years. And one in 30 of us provided intensive, day-to-day, hands-on care for someone at the end of life in the last five years. Multiply that across our life experience and we're likely to do this more than once. Or are we? Again, not wanting to romanticise the role, more than 7% of people said there's no way they would take it on again. And in fact, another 16% said that they were incredibly undecided about whether they would take on the role of being a caregiver again within that setting. Those who were unlikely to were getting older, had lower educational levels um, as the two major predictors. Being a spouse actually didn't make it uh, as, uh, as a, a predictor here, which in itself is, uh, is interesting to, uh, to consider. So we then come lastly to a fantastic piece of work by Nicholas Christakis, uh, looking at caregiver outcomes. These were spousal caregiver outcomes. He used one of the large Medicare databases here in the US, uh, looking at more than 1.2 million uh, elderly enrollees. Uh, he looked at 13 leading causes of death uh, within the five years after 1993. He then looked at the spousal survival after the person's death if they had or had not received hospice services. You reach out for a very limited resource. It's not cause and effect, it's association. And you actually survive better after the person's death. These are not soft outcomes. They're really hard outcomes. They're hard, cutting-edge outcomes that we need to think about as we move forward. So what does the community get for investing in good end-of-life care? I'd like to suggest that it delivers better patient outcomes, first and foremost. That's what it's about. But collaterally, we also see better utilisation of health services. 
and the potential for long-term caregiver health. And because it's Grand Rounds, I'd like to suggest that it may even reflect in fewer premature deaths because we're making more sensible decisions about aggressive treatment for people at the end of life. I'm happy to take some questions or some comments. <coughs> So the question is, how do you initiate uh, the caregiver becoming a partner in, uh, in that process? Um, we actually uh, did a study where we, we've done two studies that are maybe of interest here. Firstly, we actually at uh, first consultation now separately see the caregiver um, and have a separate conversation without the patient there as a routine part of, of what we do. Uh, they have needs, rarely have people actually asked them are they willing to be a caregiver and what support they think they will need uh, in that role. What's their previous experience of caregiving for someone at the end of life? Uh, those couple of questions alone are going to open up uh, a large conversation. The second is we actually have someone who's called uh, a community facilitator and their role is to go and meet with caregivers and say what are the supports that you've got around you to help in this role? And we've seen some really interesting changes as a result of that. I think a couple of very simple opening questions are uh, 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 an opportunity to, uh, to have a much longer conversation over the ensuing weeks and months. So the question was, uh, Dr. Christakis also focused on prognostication um, and uh, whether we're good or bad at it and, and whether we should have those conversations with patients. Um, two things on which to reflect there, if I may. Firstly, uh, there are two ways to read uh, Dr. Christakis's papers on prognostication. Uh, we're either very good at it or very bad at it. Uh, and you can draw each conclusion from the same paper. Um, the very good at it is if we are talking about the broad brushstrokes with which we measure time, we're excellent. So if it's months, weeks to months, weeks, days to weeks, etc., we're very good. If you want to put a number in front of it, we're very bad. So that's the first thing to, uh, to say. I, I think the, the, the next thing to say in, in terms of communication is that very rarely do I actually break bad news. Because one of the things I do is, is ask, what do you see as the future? I reinforce bad news, I confirm it, but rarely am I actually giving it. And uh, so I think we, we shouldn't underestimate patients' own ability. And in fact, 
often I'm uh, giving a prognosis that is far longer than the person expects. Um, so, and, and that's both good and bad news, depending on the person and, and their current circumstances. So I, uh, I think in terms of prognostication, um, we are actually quite good at, at uh, the broad brushstrokes. Um, and yes, patients do want uh, to have that conversation and want permission to come back to that conversation at various times in the future. Following up on that, a, a recurring conversation that we have in our mortality and morbidity improvement conference is that sort of sense of communal um, disappointment that a patient transitioned from that chronic stability to the chronic progressive to, to death without us recognizing, you know, sort of taking a moment to act on our understanding of the prognosis that we may know that death is coming soon, but the health system has a hard time sort of raising the red flag and saying this is the moment to have that conversation. And the challenge is that palliative care practitioners oftentimes are asked to get involved after that. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could reflect on the, the idea of earlier engagement of palliative care or early in, earlier engagement of the healthcare system at that moment of transition, how we could know that it's upon us. So the question is, how do we know when that moment of transition from chronic complex to chronic progressive uh, is upon us? Uh, and how do we involve palliative care and indeed other clinical teams uh, appropriately at that time? I, I think for almost every uh, disease group that we have, we now have um, reasonable factors that can predict uh, that transition for us. You know, in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, it's, uh, it's often uh, that crescendo of... Uh, uh, of hospital admissions, um, which, if all other things are equal, uh, is a very poor prognostic indicator. Um, in cardiac failure, uh, without uh, uh, an underlying etiology uh, presenting for the first time, the outlook from, from day one is very poor unless uh, uh, you've got a target uh, in, in treatment or, or you can get onto a transplant program. So I, I think for, for every disease state, those flags are actually in the literature now. And the question is, how do we systematize that uh, to ensure that as people uh, have contact with health services, that we opportunistically take that moment, and it may not be that day, but, and it may be away from the acute setting that we need to do it, but that we actually do sit down and, and have that conversation. Uh, I think there are great opportunities for uh, all of us as clinicians to really start to rethink about engineering uh, the system so that we recognize when that uh, transition occurs and that we build into our clinical care uh, the opportunity, the time, uh, in order to have that conversation. Because what we're seeing here is great downstream effects if we're having that conversation earlier. And uh, at a health systems level, it makes every sense that we need to, uh, to do exactly that. I'm aware of the time, and David will 